RadioInfluence.com You are sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of City Ringside. My name is David Penzer. We are so glad that you are here once again to listen to this thing we call a podcast. I want to thank uh, whoever got me over 3,000 Twitter followers. If you've been listening, I've been hovering right around like 2998 through 3002. I think I'm officially over 3,000 finally, so thank you very much. I appreciate it. And if you don't follow me on Twitter, uh, we have a lot of fun, so uh, check it out, at David Penzer. have an interesting guest this week, uh, John Arezzi. Uh, might not be a household name, but... Uh, Pretty much invented the wrestling convention, uh, was the first person to do it. He uh, is the one who brought Vince Russo in the wrestling business and was right smack dab in the middle of a crazy period in the early 1990s where WWE was under fire. Uh, The steroid trial of Vince McMahon and the uh, sex scandal with uh, Terry Garvin and Mel Phillips and Ring Boys. Uh, and was kind of right in the middle of that. Even ended up on a panel show with Phil Donahue, uh, with superstar Billy Graham, Bruno San Martino, Dave Meltzer, and actually Vince was on the panel uh, defending his company. So interesting story about how he got involved in it and and then why he walked away and why he's back. So uh, so I hope you stick around for that. And um, so last we spoke uh, was in the middle of Crown Jewel, uh, if I remember correctly. Uh, I think we were about two-thirds of the way through Crown Jewel, and I, I mentioned that in passing. And boy, talk about the shit hitting the fan. But I know that uh, that lots of people have talked about uh, about the WWE guy, people, talent getting stuck. Um, the, the, what I find, I, I don't really get caught up in the whole, you know, did, did they get kidnapped? Did they get stuck? What was it? Maintenance. We'll never know the true story probably. Uh, and if we do, it probably be a very interesting tale, but, um, we probably, like I said, I'll never know. So can't get caught up in too, in too much in that, but, What I think is fascinating is when Vince McMahon's back is against the wall, and darn it, I've seen it. I saw when he did the Brett Screwjob, and and we thought in WCW that he was done and that that was going to tear his company apart. And he, two weeks later, he turned into the heel Mr. McMahon character and started playing off of Steve Austin and totally changed the game. The guy, when when his back is against the wall, and I think I said it, at one point, building up to these Wednesday Night Wars, he is, he, he just does his best work. And, and maybe it wasn't his idea. I'm sure it was Triple H's idea, but he had to sign off on it. And, and the fact of the matter is they were left with a show with about 10 talents that were available to be there because of the travel delays. And so they did what everybody is saying was not planned you could you would think it might have been planned to do an nxt uh kind of invasion because they had just announced that nxt was going to be a part of survivor series but i could tell you from everything that i know and everything i've heard uh from some pretty high sources uh if they were going to do any kind of interpromotional stuff it was going to be after the overseas tours that are coming up here so it was not supposed to be for smackdown last week and Raw this week and, and NXT this week. So uh, so they really, they really uh, 
help themselves. And now that the ratings are out for the Wednesday night wars, I predicted actually that based on all the hype that they would win the war the night uh, they lost by, I think, 9,000 fans, which is a lot closer than it had been. So it definitely helped the NXT brand uh, and interest in that. So it's it's just ironic how a, a bad situation in Saudi Arabia uh, turned maybe turned the fortunes of uh, NXT and the Wednesday Night Wars, if not around, certainly gave it a new chapter. Uh, speaking of AEW and the Wednesday Night Wars, um, thought that other than the... Uh, girls tag team match, which I just, I'm sorry, I said it on Twitter, I, I, nothing against the girls, I don't know them. They promoted Nia Jax and Awesome Kong and and, and B Priestley and, and Britt Baker, who we hope to have on the show here sooner than later. And uh, and then they they tried out, other than Riho, they tried out three girls I really don't know. And I just really didn't have any interest in it, I'm sorry. But other than that match, I thought it was the strongest AEW show since they debuted. Fantastic, fantastic promo by Cody Rhodes. I listened to it three times. Fantastic promo. Gave me chills because, remember, you know, remember I grew up listening to Dusty Rhodes in his heyday in championship wrestling from Florida and then the NWA. And um, what a promo to really bring that, that match home and uh, make it personal. Uh, fantastic uh, Chris Jericho mocking video of the Cody video uh, that's been out for a couple of weeks on his world title chase. Uh, they Whoever put that together, I think it was Kevin Sullivan, not the Kevin Sullivan who's been a guest on the podcast, but uh, the Kevin Sullivan who's a producer, has a production company and worked with TNA and Jeff Jarrett in the past. Uh, I think he put that together. Great stuff. That is why Chris Jericho and I get along so well is because we have the same sense of humor. And I almost felt like they created that video just to entertain me uh, because it was so off the wall and, and, and sarcastic and, and, and just the little things like Bobski being the last name of the, the friend of Chris from friend of his mother's from church or however they labeled her. Bobski's always a go-to Chris Jericho name if he's messing around. So love that. Love the brawl at the end. Really uh, made you want to see the pay-per-view if you didn't want to see it before. Um, other than the women's tag team match, the only thing I'll complain about, um, and, you know, I don't, I don't work there and it's not my place, but, I, you know, I, I, I'm a straight shooter. There's still not enough, in my opinion, undercard character development. There may never be. There just may never be. That may not be something that's important to them. Uh, if, you, if I talk to my son who watches Being the Elite and all the videos that come out on YouTube, he explains to me that a lot of the, uh, that, uh, that character development is done on those shows that I don't watch. Uh, so, you know, my, I, I, my, my thinking is you do that character development in front of 800,000 fans, not on a YouTube show, but, uh, just my opinion. And, uh, I hope that as they, uh, as, as we get more involved in the show and as they start to grow more they'll do more undercard character development uh we know all about the top guys but not so much about the undercard girls and guys but um as we tape this uh like i said the ratings are in and they were very close aew by uh i think nine thousand uh fans so uh this is just uh starting it's not it's not nobody's taking the lead and uh it's just getting going, so we're going to strap on our seatbelt and wait to see what happens in the Wednesday Night Wars. And as we tape this, uh, it is uh, before 
full gear. So uh, we hope to talk about full gear next week and it'll be interesting to see. What do you think? Uh, do you think uh, Cody wins uh, or do you think he loses and never challenges again? I, 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 no matter what happens, I think that he'll challenge again. But uh, interesting stipulation to put on that match to make you really wonder if Cody is uh, going to become the champion. And uh, we'll see. Uh, looks like they're going to war games. Uh, when I was thinking about that, because I, I kind of noticed that when they formed the inner circle, I was wondering what they'd call it. Uh, they don't own war games. Obviously, WWE does, and they use the name. Uh, but the original war games, if you don't know this, was called War Games The Match Beyond. Uh, war games part was the every f- five minutes, two minutes, whatever part. And then once all f- five, four men, women, whatever were in the ring, then Dusty created what he called the match beyond. Uh, so I, I guess judging from Cody's promo, they have trademarked the match beyond. So it's a little another homage to the legendary Dusty Rhodes and um, looking forward to that. That should be fun. The elite versus the inner circle uh, in the match beyond. So that's my thoughts. Love to hear your thoughts. You can hit me up on Twitter, like I said, at David Penzer, all one word. Love to chat with you. I always uh, do my best to interact, and, um, and, uh, and, and it's fun. I'm actually having fun with it. So I never knew. Who knew when I first heard about Twitter? Who knew? But I'm having fun with it. Right now, I want to bring on my guest this time. Very interesting story. Very uh, uh, probably not well known unless you're an old timer like me. But uh, I think you'll enjoy it. I know you'll enjoy it. Uh, like I said earlier, he uh, was right smack dab in the middle of a crazy time in especially New York uh, area, northeastern uh uh, news coverage and uh, newspaper coverage and Vince McMahon standing trial and uh, for steroid distribution and a whole sex scandal with ring boys. And um, he was right in the middle of that. He also uh, brought Vince Russo in the business. So we'll have to uh, give him hell for that. And uh, in addition to that, he, which I think is probably going to, if you look back uh, and look at everything that he accomplished and that he's done, probably the biggest accomplishment is he really had the first wrestling convention uh, where uh, the wrestlers came out and interacted and signed autographs, took pictures, did Q&As and stuff like that. So uh, that's probably if uh, what he'll be remembered for, at least in my opinion. So it's a fascinating story. And to tell it, please welcome my guest this week, John Arezzi. All right, ladies and gentlemen, when we started this podcast sitting ringside, we vowed not to only have professional wrestlers and managers on, but also behind-the-scenes referees. Uh, we've had Bill Apter, George Napolitano, uh, journalists like Dave Meltzer, and I am very excited this week to explore what has become a little bit of a renaissance for somebody who really had a lot of first in this business, and that is the host of the podcast pro wrestling spotlight then and now and his name is john arezzi john what a ride it's been and uh, you're back in the game congratulations hey thank you dave it's uh, great to uh, be here with you today and yeah getting back in the game is a very interesting thing for me at this point in my life 
So, so let's start at the beginning because I didn't, I, I never realized a couple of things until I started doing research for this interview. First one is I never realized that you had wrestled, although I did find a couple of, I think you had put on Twitter in the last couple of days, some, um, clips of you wrestling in a handicap match against Dusty Rhodes for W, the old WWWF. Um, so you grew up, I'm assuming in New York City or Long Island? Uh, I was born in Brooklyn, uh, actually in, uh, Bushwick, the Bushwick section of Brooklyn, New York. Uh, I was born in 1957, and uh, at the age of seven years old, I uh, saw wrestling for the first time, and I was on Channel 5 in New York and uh, saw Bruno San Martino, and uh, at the age of seven years old, I, I got hooked. I just fell in love with it. Uh, moved out to Long Island in 1964, and... Um, Followed wrestling uh, on and off. My loves, my passions were three things: the Beatles, uh, who I was fortunate enough to see live, see live at Chase Wow! I, yeah. Wow! <laughs> you were at that show? Uh, yeah, it changed my life. Changed my wow. life. Wow! Uh, uh, you know, I just love the Beatles. I love the New York Mets, and I love pro wrestling. Uh, so uh, fortunately, uh, I've had an opportunity to uh, work in the music business. Uh, I've worked for the New York Mets. And I've worked in pro wrestling, so um, kind of happy with the journey I've had so far. I'm with you on the first one and the last one. Not so much the New York Mets. Sorry to hear that. But uh, that's okay. I mean, they they break my heart in a different way every year. I'm, I'm a they, they really do. And and not to go off on a tangent. I'm a big baseball fan. I'm a Tampa Bay Rays fan. And um and not to go off on a tangent because it is a wrestling podcast. But I I don't get it. They got. Uh, all the money in the world, you know, the Rays have to, you know, uh, cut corners and 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 do uh, all kinds of uh, 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 analytics and stuff like that to try to put together a team that's competitive. You guys got all the money in the world in the first or second biggest market in the country and can't put together a, a team that could go to the that that could win a pennant. And I, I just don't get it. You think you could find somebody who would uh, who could use that money and find a gr- group of uh, players. Well, I mean, it's ownership, and and that's the bottom line. It's the Wilpon family who have owned the Mets uh, uh, first as partners with Nelson Doubleday coming in in 1980, and then when Nelson left and the Wilpons took sole ownership, I mean, the the franchise has gone into the toilet. They they don't spend the money. The money is a big market team. Uh, they're very dysfunctional. They alienate their uh, legends and their players that have uh, had careers with them. Uh, so it's really a heartbreaking situation for the Met fans. We go through this every year, uh, and it's and it's sad in so many different ways. And uh, you know, it is what it is. I mean, I I I, I became a Mets fan, uh, you know, when I went to my very first game, July third, nineteen sixty six, and I've stayed with them ever since. Uh, you cheer for the team, you cheer for the uniform, but unfortunately, uh, when you have ownership that doesn't really put the fans first. Uh, this is the type of things that happen. So we, uh, I'm accustomed to it. Yeah, I work with the Legends of Wrestling that Brian Knobs owns. And um, uh, we did a show at uh, the stadium there a couple, three years ago. Goldberg was there. Actually, Drew, but there was no uh, Mets game. It was just a, a standalone thing at the stadium. And um, it drew about 10,000 people. But the only problem is it didn't look very like a lot of people in a baseball stadium. But if that was in a, any other venue than a baseball stadium or a football stadium, it would have been a hell of a house. But we had Bill Goldberg. I will tell you, though, that the people that we dealt with, uh, and I don't know if they were marketing people who were very extremely difficult 
to to deal with in in a variety of ways and uh and and it really it, it took every ounce of patience for all of us to uh to be able to get through that event uh extremely hands on and um uh overbearing so i don't know if that has anything to do with the ownership but uh uh it, it might Anyway, it might, it might. From the top down, I've been a season ticket holder literally for many, many, many years to this day, even though I live in Nashville. And this is the first year, this is the first year, this for this upcoming season that I've decided to pull the plug on my season tickets. I've had enough. Uh, I will keep my season tickets down in Port St. Lucie because I really enjoy going there every year. There you go. That's the cheap way to do it. Hey, uh, tell me about the Beatles concert. How old were you? I'm a huge music fan, huge, and I, I'm a huge live concert fan. Uh, uh, so, uh, if, if you know, as a matter of fact, if I didn't get involved in the wrestling business, my other dream was to uh, be like a, a tour manager uh, for bands. So, uh, hey, you work in marketing. Maybe I can still make that happen. But uh, t- tell me about that Beatles, legendary Beatles concert at Say Stadium. I'm officially jealous of uh, that, that you were there. And i yeah, officially jealous I never even got to see them. I did see Paul McCartney. Uh, I was in a stadium and my seats were closer to God than they were to Paul. But, uh, mm. uh, but it was still a great show. Oh, yeah. McCartney is always great. And any time he's in the general vicinity of where I am, I go. Uh, I love to uh, experience that magic that is Paul McCartney. Uh, I just saw Ringo Starr this summer on Long Island, and that was special for me. But the Beatles thing, I mean, uh, I was a fan when they came to America. I watched them on Ed Sullivan. Uh, I was, uh, wow, seven years old, and I was trying to call the Plaza Hotel to try to talk to them when I was a little kid when they first came to America that first weekend. They had phones and, back then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> come on now. <laughs> I'm just kidding. They were, they were rotary. They were I know. I'm spot. just kidding. And they certainly were wired. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I understand. But I mean, uh, it was really just kind of a crazy. My dad had scored some tickets for Shea Stadium. Uh, and this is not the very first one in 65. This was the 1960s show uh, was the Beatles uh, second to last live appearance before Candlestick Park. But anyway, my dad scored some tickets from his boss at the time. And uh, and they were earmarked for my older sister. Uh, rest her soul, uh, and uh, a few of her girlfriends. And uh, I wanted to go, but, you know, my sister was like, no, you can't go. You know, it's a, I'm going. And, and then one of her girlfriends couldn't go for whatever reason, so she was going to call another girlfriend up, and my dad is like, no, Johnny's going to go. So, uh, and the seats were literally, right. the Beatles were, were set, uh, they were on second base. That's where the staging was set up. And these seats were right in back of the Mets dugout. So it was there were amazing seats. Uh, and, you know, they had about 10 opening acts. Uh, and then the Beatles took the stage and played 40 minutes. And and I was just I was just in a in a daze. Uh, you couldn't hear anything. I was going to ask you other than screaming women. Could you hear any music? No, no, I was like. I was just kind of like soaking it all in as an experience. And of course I love the Beatles and you heard some of the music, but it was mostly fainting girls, screaming girls. I remember getting pushed off my seat by this girl who literally was standing on the seat, biting through this pencil uh, and just screaming and sobbing. And, and it was just kind of one of the most interesting things I've ever experienced 
to this day in my life. And but it changed my life. It was I, I always loved music, and I, I was uh, I was raised on 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 music and classic rock and and all of those great acts from the '60s through my older sister who turned me on not only to the Beatles but uh, but so many acts. Uh, over the over that decade of the '60s and even to the early '70s. That's fascinating. Fa- uh, that's fascinating. I could go on about music. Uh, maybe we'll have a a conversation. Uh, so, especially if you're going to be in Port St. Lucie, we could have a couple drinks and talk music business because I'm I'm in Tampa. Uh, but let's get back. To, let's get back to wrestling, though. Um, but but I'm okay. I'm serious though. I'm fascinated by the whole music thing and the Beatles concert and all that. Um, so. You had a match with Dusty Rhodes. I didn't realize you were a wrestler. You were a wrestling fan when you were seven. You said, didn't you have to be 14 to even go to Madison Square Garden, or was that already law already gone? No, no, you had to be 14. Matter of fact, when I was 10 years old in 1967, my dad, I convinced him to take me to a wrestling match, not knowing you couldn't get in. It was Bruno San Martino against Gorilla Monsoon. And it was at the old Madison Square Garden. And I finally convinced him after, please, Dad, take me to a wrestling match. I want to go. He, he gets a, he gets one of his best friends, takes their the kids. And it's like five of us. We buy our tickets and and, and we're ready to go into uh, the arena. And, and the security guard said, can't come in. Your kids, you know, you have to be 14 or over. And, 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 that, and that broke my heart. I mean, literally crying and, and couldn't get in and. And it was just quite, uh, quite a heartbreaking experience. But uh, when I was 14 years old, I went to my first wrestling match, and that was at Madison Square Garden. It was uh, main event, Pedro Morales against Stan the Man Stasiak. And uh, it was like the only time I believe Mar- uh, Morales had lost at the Garden. It was due to blood. And uh, it, started a, uh, it started a record for me, actually, that – I attended every single show at Madison Square Garden uh, from uh, that day, which was August of uh, 71. And I went to every single show through midsummer of uh, 77. Didn't miss one. Uh, but I was a fan. And I, you know, I started taking photographs at ringside. I'd go to the shows. And, and uh, what really kind of transitioned me into you know, getting into the business a little bit uh, I, I fell in love with uh, Freddie Blassie. I thought he was an amazing uh, heel on the East Coast. And I wasn't smartened up or anything, but it, Blassie was the bad guy on the East Coast and the good guy on the West Coast. All his injuries. I mean, I started absorbing wrestling magazines in 67 when I discovered them for the first time uh, and, and got to read about all of these great personalities. I didn't think there was anything outside of the WWF until I saw wrestling magazines and Lassie uh, was kind of the guy that I gravitated to as such a remarkable bad guy and then a good guy uh, on the West Coast. So anyway, I, I wanted to start a fan club for him. And uh, in December 71, he was at the Garden Wrestling Morales. Uh, I had uh, uh, wrote up a little permission slip. And I tried to get into the dressing room at the age of 14 years old. Uh, security guard stopped me and I said, I need to get Fred Blassie to sign his permission slip. And he went back in uh, the dressing room and five minutes later comes out with the signed permission slip. And No way. Uh, yeah. And I didn't know if it was real or not. So I sent it to California to Jeff Walton, who was a promoter and ran Blassie's fan club uh, in the 60s. And Jeff uh sent it back to me and said it was a legitimate uh, Freddie Blassie signature. And 
I started a newsletter called King of Men, uh, Freddie Blassie fan club newsletter. And uh, I did that really from 72 uh, through 75 when I started college. And I won fan club of the year in 1974 and best monthly fan bulletin in 1974 from WFIA, Western Fans International Association, and also the uh, Bill After Magazine's uh, Inside Wrestling Fan Club of the Year as well in 74. So uh, I immediately uh, made a little traction in the business at that time, uh, which led to me um, uh, talking my way into a, a, um, a ringside photographer's uh, press pass at uh, Madison Square Garden in 1975. Uh, this is a funny story as well, how we even got this. You know, I, you know, I thought that uh, Willie Gilsenberg, the figurehead WWF president, yeah. president, I thought that was legit. So I was outside the Holland Hotel where the Capitol Wrestling offices were, and I see Willie Gilsenberg uh, walking into the hotel. And at this time, I'd done a little, a few freelance things, sent some pictures into some of the magazines, but uh, from Ringside, and I think I'd sold one article at that time on Fred Blassie to a Tommy D publication. So anyway, uh, and I did a freelance uh, magazine article for Ring Magazine and got a press card from them. Uh, so Willie Gilsberg comes in the hotel and uh, I literally followed him into the elevator and Capitol Wrestling offices were on floor number two and I pushed floor number 18 uh, uh, and closed the door and Willie is like, you made me miss my floor. I was like, I'm John Arezzi. I'm a writer photographer for Ring Magazine. I've written articles. Da, 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 da. I gave him this quick elevator pitch, and he goes, all right, come with me. And then he opened, he takes me into the office. Arnold Skolin is in there, and he says, Arnie, give this kid a press pass. And that's exactly how it happened. Wow. And then I was stationed at Ringside with George and Bill and the Japanese photographers. And so I was right there, you know, beginning in 75 to – capture and shoot amazing matches over that era and the wrestling stuff was uh, once again if you want me to get into that i mean i i didn't have any training i don't even know why i did it i, I mean i didn't have a lot of matches i had two matches at, at one taping i was friends with ernie roth the grand wizard uh of wrestling and uh i was in college i was doing a college radio show called pro wrestling spotlight and i Got to interview guys uh, in the Boston area, all the WWF guys. And and I asked Ernie, I said, Ernie, I want to give this a shot. I like to go in the ring. He goes, why would you want to do that for? I was like, I said, I just want to see how it is. You know, I want to see how, how, and, 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 and he basically said, all right, I mean, I'll, you know, I'll set you up. So uh, January 10th, 1978, I show up in Philadelphia. Like I did all the time because I, I went to the tapings with George Napolitano, like all the time. And this time I brought my gear with me. I bought stuff from K&H Wrestling and uh, Monsoon knew me, but he didn't. He knew me, but he didn't. He saw me around. And uh, Ernie makes the introduction and Monsoon was like, where have you worked? I said, I worked down south. You know, I did a few shows down south. And, and he goes, you got your gear? I was like, yeah. He goes, uh, heel or baby? I was like, heel. <laughs> And that was it. And and then I was like, all right, now what? You know, and I asked Ernie to find out who I was going to be working with. And he, and she said and he said, Dusty Rhodes. So I finally, you know, go into the dressing room. Now, no, no. At this point, are you smartened up to the business or you're still not? Um, oh, of course, I'm smartened up to the business. I mean, I got I kind of got smartened up years before 1972 when Bruno fought Pedro Morales at Chase Stadium. And I was waiting online to get in, and this guy, Professor Elliot, 
Marin, who was doing security, came out and was like, it's going to be a draw tonight. I was like, oh, lovely. what do you mean it's going to be a draw? It's going to be a draw. No one's going to win. I was like, get out of here. And all of a sudden, it's a draw. And I was like, hey, this, this, is a, this is a total, this is fake, you know? So and that's how I got smartened up. But I was a kid. I was 15. Uh, but anyway, you know, fast forward to 78, and I'm doing all these taking pictures and I get and into the back and and I got recognized by some of the guys and they're like, holy smokes, John, how you doing? And, and Sylvana Sousa, uh, who was in there, automatically went to uh, uh, Monsoon and said he's the photographer guy. But they still let me work. And Vince McMahon, from what I understand, because he knew me and I, I was shooting some pictures for him up in New England. Um, when he was promoting up there, um, he asked George Napolitano, like, I didn't know he worked. And George said, well, I didn't either. You know? <laughs> so anyway, I went into the ring with no training whatsoever. And uh, I looked, it was horrible. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to go with anything. And I stiffed Dusty in the first few. And I put Seusser in the ring with me uh, to... Uh, to be there to watch over me, I guess. And it was a handicap match against Dusty. And and I, I, I stiffed Dusty, I remember, in the corner in the very first opening minutes of the match. And and uh, then Sousa takes a tumble out of the ring. And Dusty just kind of picked me up by my hair. Um, he grabbed me by the hair and he laid an elbow on top of my head, which is I, I posted that today on Twitter, actually. And it was very freaking stiff. Uh, and then when I got picked up again, uh, he just shook his finger at me like like teach you a lesson. And he was pretty stiff with me that uh, in that four in those four minutes. And, and really, I really got I got dazed really badly. So uh, there were three there were three shows they tape per taping. And I was scheduled in the second hour to uh, team with uh, Joe Turco, the Catania Sic from Catania, Sicily the Sicilian nobleman against chief J Strongbow and, uh, Peter Mavia. And in this match, I was told to stay outside the ring, the entire match, <laughs> except for the, except for the finish. When I'd finally get tagged in by Turco and immediately I'd get thrown in over the top. Strongbow picked me up, threw me into the corner. Mavia gives me a headbutt. I go down one, two, three, it's over. And in the third set of tapings, I was supposed to work with Bob Backlund, uh, and after the second match, uh, Monsoon said, you're done. You know, you're done for the night. And, and that was it. And, and the ironic part of all of this was that the next Madison Square Garden show, February 20th, 1978. So that's the month afterwards. And that's the night Backlund won the title from Billy Graham. I get to the ringside, take my my, uh, my station there, set my cameras up and and before you know it, I mean, someone comes out, Mel Phillips, I think it was actually, and says, so you got to You got to leave. It's like, what do you mean? Well, your pitcher's in the program. You're wrestling Strongbow. Your pitcher's in the program. So you can't shoot anymore because you wrestled. And I, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I bullshitted my way into the ring and out of a photography job. Uh, and that was the end of my, uh, my photography uh, job. Um, shooting pictures at the garden. So anyway, I, I, you know, that's what happened. And that's, I didn't intend to have a career in wrestling at that point. I wanted to work in baseball. That was my goal when I was in college. I wanted to work for the Mets. I got to tell you, though, uh, the little clips of the matches that I've seen, now that you've explained that you never had any training and it was your first time in the ring, it's not as bad. It's not actually not that bad. 
Oh, thank you. That's a great compliment. I, I mean, appreciate that. Uh, yeah, you know, you kind of, you know, kind of, you know, knew what to do, and I, I selective, saw selective editing. Yeah, I saw at one point he put uh, Dusty banged you guys heads together, and you need to put your hand up, and so that you know, hey, that, you know, you know a little bit. Uh, did you get any heat for that, or they just wouldn't let you uh, um, uh, be at ringside because your picture was in the program? Uh, they they pulled me from that, but I continued to shoot in Boston at the Boston Garden. Uh, but that was kind of my my out, and I really didn't cover a match at the Garden after that. As a photographer, I went one other time. I think believe it was in 1982, um, and that was it for me, really. Uh, but it was never something I intended to have a career in in pro wrestling. So it, it was all for the best, and I had the experience. I did it. Uh, and, and I kind of shot through wrestling, you know, as a kid from 14 uh, right through the time I was 20, uh, 21 in the ring. And, and that was kind of I thought it was going to be a close chapter for me, never thinking I would not only get it again, get into the business again, uh, this time in 1989 uh, and then leave it in 96 and, and now come back. Uh, so it's been an interesting um it's been an interesting journey. Let's sure. put it that way. Mine too. Hey, so 89, you launched a, a wrestling radio show in Long Island. Uh, yeah. From what I read, it was not kayfabe. It was, uh, uh, you know, uh, you, 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 you didn't play the Bill Apter game where you went along with everything. Uh, talk to me, what was the vision you had for that show, and, and, and what kind of heat did you get from, from the local office, uh, if any? Well, there was a lot of heat. Uh, I didn't really start the show off as uh, a show that I intended to be a, a a shoot show or tearing the curtain down. I started Pro Wrestling Spotlight initially in college for a couple of years, and that was pure kayfabe. Uh, and then um, when my music management company was uh, coming to a close in 1989, I was like, well, Maybe I could get back into broadcasting and do a pro wrestling talk show. And and I start I yeah you know, I, I was working at WNYG Radio in New York, and I asked them if I could do a radio talk show. And the owners, uh, Mrs. Hornstein, a very eccentric old woman, uh, said, "Yes, Cookie, you can do one. You know, as long as it brings money in." And uh, it was a real mom and pop station. So I started this show, and I reached out to the office. Um, I reached out to. Uh, uh, the WWF uh, spoke to a kid named Steve Planamenta, who was running PR, and he knew me from the 70s. I mean, yeah, he, he used said, to take photos, didn't he? Yeah, he basically he was a he was a fan of mine when I was because my one of my college, my best friends at college was his next door neighbor. And when he said that he knew this photographer, John Arezzi, he goes, John Arezzi, oh, my God. And he was he must have been 12 or 13. And now when I call up in 1989 to start a wrestling show, he knew who I was. And he was like, boy, uh, this is great. We'd love to cooperate with you. But you're not going to be like that guy, Rich Man Cuso on WFAN. You're not going to expose the business, are you? And I was like, no, I don't have any intention on exposing the business. Uh, but uh, in my second show, I brought on Bruno Sammartino, my hero, my legend, my the legend, the hero of, of mine. Uh, and I got his number from George M. Macropolis, and and I did an interview with Bruno. It wasn't live; it was taped first. But the things he was saying were like, "Holy smokes!" I mean, he was 
he was going off on the business and McMahon and the steroids well, that, and the yeah, drugs. That and, was the and, that was during his anti WWE and anti wrestling yes. period. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, so, I mean, it was like, what do I do? I mean, I, I played the tapes for the uh, for the station because uh, I was like, this is crazy. And I told Planamenta, who had cooperated with me on my very first show by giving me uh, Jimmy Hart as a guest. And we were scheduled to get Blasty and I was scheduled to get all these guys. And then when I did Bruno, I, I called Steve up and I was like, listen, I, I did an interview with Bruno San Martino. Uh, and he the first thing was like, you're not going to air it, are you? <laughs> he, didn't, he, didn't he, he didn't have to guess. He knew what he knew. What was oh, gonna... absolutely. And I was like, well, I think I got to. But I did water it down. I mean, I what I did was I I I I, I re-recorded it with Bruno. I called him. I was like, listen, uh, the station won't let me play a lot of the stuff. They're fearful for a lawsuit. So he graciously did another interview with me. Uh, but even though uh, he didn't trash them like he did in the original version, they still stopped co- cooperating with me right from that second show. It was all over. Uh, NWA at the time cooperated. They did everything for me. I was backstage. I was doing interviews. And so it really it really was uh, it was a good ride with uh, with uh, uh, WCW, NWA, up until the point when uh, up until the point where Steamboat left. When Steamboat left with the contract negotiations with Heard, uh, Ricky had come and uh, asked to come on my show, and he went on my show to talk about why he left the NWA, and that was a shoot interview that, for the first time, it, it made news. I mean, Meltzer and uh, you know everybody was talking about it. It was in the the Observer, and then the following week, Jim Hurd came on to answer that Ricky Steamboat interview. So that tore the curtain down even more. And uh, and then the show over the course of time in year one evolved from this kayfabe, in-character, uh, crazy show to a more serious uh, show covering more of the inside of the business. And it really exploded in 1990, 91 when the steroid controversy happened and then the sex allegations my show became legendary for it being a shoot show let me take a moment to tell you about mac weldon mac weldon is a premium men's essentials brand that believes in smart design and premium fabrics it was founded because the owners wanted more out of the basics and always questioned how something so essential could be such a pain in the ass to buy the frustration was real And their Eureka moment happened at a department store aisle full of brands that dominated our top drawer. Surrounded by mind-numbing assortment of underwear and socks, they realized consistent fit and quality became a game of roulette. So decided to take matters into their own hands, started from scratch, and engineered their own fabric. They made sure that the design process was meticulous so you could count on the fit being the same each time. They built a world-class customer experience. The differences in the detail, folks, they are, were so obsessed with every stitch and seam that they went over it and over it and over it and over it again until they reached their definition of perfect. Mack Weldon believes in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. I went on their website to order some T-shirts, and it was simple. You go on there, 
You just click shirts. They ask you what kind of shirts. I wanted long sleeve shirts since it's going to be cold here in Tampa, Florida. And so I wanted to order some long sleeve t-shirts. And not only was it easy to monitor and easy to guide through on the website, but right above every description are reviews from customers that are very simple to read and find out more about the product. Mack Weldon will be the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies and sweatpants and more that you will ever wear. They have a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial. Also, they want you to be comfortable. So if you don't like your first pair of underwear, you could keep it and they will still refund you. No questions asked. Not only does Mack Weldon's underwear, socks and shirts look good, They perform well, too. Great for working out, going to work, going out on dates, just everyday life. Like I said, I went online. It was real easy to navigate. I ended up ordering a couple of Pima long sleeve T-shirts with soft Pima cotton and an Avenue Crew neck sweatshirt for the cold nights in Tampa, Florida that are about to come. It has a rib collar and cuffs and... Like I said, the reviews are easy to find. The site is easy to navigate. And I can't wait to wear my new shirts. Once again, they have a guarantee. So if you don't like your first pair, you could keep it and they will still refund you. No questions asked. And we have a special offer. If you listen to this podcast for 20% off your first order, visit MacWeldon.com. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com and enter promo code ringside. 20% off. Visit MacWeldon.com and enter promo code ringside. I can't wait for it to get cold and wear my cotton shirts and my hoodie. And I know you will be excited to wear your underwear, your shirts, and your sweats. Great stuff, great product, and great navigation on their website. 20% off your first order. Visit MacWeldon.com. Enter the promo code RINGSIDE. So in 1990, correct me if I'm wrong, and you're great with dates. You know, I, I don't remember what, what date yesterday was, and you, uh, and you could quote dates of your first wrestling match, the first time you saw wrestling, the first time you heard the Beatles. That's, un- that's amazing. But in 1990, you created Weekend of Champions, which really, to the best of my knowledge, was – the first ever wrestling convention. Would that be correct? Yes, that's correct. I mean, there were some, you know, like the WFIA had their conventions, but it was more for hardcore fans. It yeah, wasn't there real. was a group of, there was really a group of fans yeah. and like, yeah, you know, yeah, Eddie yeah. Gilbert would come and Cornette. And I don't even know that those guys, that those guys were even wrestling in the wrestling business at the time. But no, uh, that's when I, that's when I first met those guys back, back in the day. But anyway, I had an idea to do a convention too, cause I love baseball card shows, big baseball card. Uh, fan. I, got, I got the connection. There. Yeah. So I see the vendor tables, I see the baseball players and I'm like, wrestling doesn't have this. So it would be kind of cool to maybe organize something that the fans and the wrestlers can get together for interaction and then have dealer tables, and and that's how exactly how it happened. And I was like, you know, I wanted to get a hook for the first one, and and I, I Sting was about to win the title uh, from Flair in 1990, and I thought that would be a good first headline guest. Uh, so negotiated with the office and and got Sting, and uh, and then also Terry Funk was at the first one, and Cactus and Cactus Jack, and Bruno San Martino, of course. You got to bring Bruno in. Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, who I gotten to know pretty well, and and the first uh, convention took place in August of 1990, and and I was onto something. There was something there. There was a business there. 
Was it a hard sell for some of the talent to interact with the fans, or they just saw it as a, you know, just like going out and doing a, a radio appearance or a, or an autograph at a mall? Well, I, I think it was an it was an eye opening experience for any of the performers to come in and see that, especially during that time, because what you had attending mostly were hardcore fans, right. uh, and and, uh, and so it was kind of a new world for the performers to kind of interact face to face with fans. But the thing is the fans loved these performers. The fans were smart. The fans were appreciative of being able to shake a hand, get a picture with, get an autograph by, have a conversation with. So I think, I think it was a, I think it was a mutual love between the fans and the performers because everyone had a great time. It was kind of this, Wow, you know we're all together. It's a fraternity, and and uh, uh, it was really special. I think, but the uh, the second year when I did Weekend of Champions, when I had Flair at his very first one ever, and I brought Buddy Rogers in and and Fez and and some of the other legends of the business. Flair was the one that surprised me most of all. Uh, I didn't think he was going to do it after I had the commitment because he was then leaving WCW to go to WWF who were not very fond of me, but he made the commitment. He did it. And he basically, I think he found that it was so much different than what he expected. Cause he went into the ring. We had a ring set up in the ballroom and we were doing the auction and he was like, I really didn't know what to expect from this. And, and, and even with John Arezzi, I mean, I threw John out of the back cause I was so I was so uh, worried about how the business has become exposed. Oh, I got thrown I, out of the back by Flair too. So at the night, yeah. well, James L. Knight Center, the so. only one. Yeah, so. I mean, it, yeah, he threw me out, but then he apologized and said, you know, I really appreciate this. I didn't know what this was going to be, but I really, uh, I really appreciate the camaraderie. And he and he gave a nice little speech, and I think he was more surprised and pleasantly surprised on what it was than what he uh, expected coming into it. You know, it's still like that. I do a fan fest uh, twice a year called uh, Championship Wrestling from Florida Legends Fan Fest. The last one was actually this past weekend uh, with Barry Windham and and J.J. Dillon and uh, Dutch Mantel, uh, and uh, we have uh, uh, Rocky Johnson, and, and, and everybody that comes, whether it's Jody Hamilton, the assassin, who was our first major guest, or, or Kevin Sullivan, who I know you're very good friends with, or JJ, who's been there before, or Bob Roop, who's been at a couple. They, and this is very small. I mean, we limit it to a hundred fans. Um, so it's a very intimate kind of Q and A, and we have a little bit of a uh, autograph session, and then we do Q and A's, uh, and, and everybody, Almost down to person, even like a guy like Bob Orton, who really doesn't, you know, really not uh, doesn't sell a lot about that kind of stuff. You know, Bob just likes to, you know, I don't know if you know Bob, but Bob just likes I to, do. Bob just likes to, you know, have a beer and and uh, and and you know do what he does and then go up to his room. He's not, you know, he, you know, like guy like Bob Roop is really into talking to the fans. Guy like Bob Orton wasn't rude at all, but not so much. But he really was over was was totally blown away by by how much these guys knew and how much they cared. Uh, and and all these guys that we've had and and you know and this weekend too. So. Um, so it's still that way, but that's cool that that that, that was sort of the, the jumping off block that you came up with, and you could always take pride that 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 was that was the first one because now, as you know, there every in a city, 
every weekend there's a wrestling convention. So that's that's really cool. Um, I saw you booked the Sheik, the original Sheik for a convention. How did that work? Because I'm assuming that he was didn't sit there and have conversations with people, or maybe he did by that time. Uh, the Sheik was somebody that um, I was always scared of as a when he was in the ring, and I and I had the idea to bring the Sheik in. I had Sabu at that convention as well, and I went to Kevin Sullivan. And I was like, Kevin, I want to get the Sheik for the next one. What do you think? He goes, I don't know, John. Maybe, you know, maybe he'll do it. I don't know. And, and, he, and he said he would do it. He got back to me. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he was in character. And, and, and I wanted to maintain the suspension of disbelief. So I didn't even interact with the guy. His wife was there. I gave his wife the payday. But I wouldn't. I, would, I just shook his hand. That's all I did. I didn't even talk to him. Because I didn't want to, I don't, I didn't want that illusion to go away because he was so believable in the ring as this crazy monster heel. And I don't know, I don't think he talked to any of the fans. He would sign the pictures and that would be that. Uh, But, you know, and I didn't even get a picture with him, which uh, to this day, I'm really uh, disappointed in because uh, he was one of my favorites back then. And the fact that he did it and, and Sabu, when I speak to Sabu occasionally these days, and he always brings it up because that's the only one he's ever done. He never did that afterwards and he never did it before. That's cool. Hey, um, I'm going to ask you this. And if you don't want to go into it, I totally understand. But how much did you said the first headline uh, guest of your first convention was Sting? How much does a Sting go for back in uh, 1990 for an appearance like that? If you could talk about it. If not, I get it. No, I have no problem talking about it because this is that I paid in comparison to what these guys are getting today, especially at that level. That's why. And that's why I was asking. So different. I, I, we paid uh, five thousand. For Sting, but we got a $2,500 rebate from the office because he left in the middle of the appearance. He just got up and left. Any reason why? Um, I would assume, I would assume that, and I don't know if it's true or not, that maybe the office didn't compensate because it went through the office. It wasn't directly to him. The office may have not given given him the payday uh, that he might have been, he might have found out what the number was. Maybe that's what I'm assuming. And he got up and said, like, William, shoot, I'm not getting any, you know, whatever the office paid him. I don't know. So we went to the office, said he left, he left in the middle of it. He left a lot of people waiting in line. Uh, and uh, and they gave us a twenty five hundred dollar rebate. They paid it in half. I mean, so most of the guys, even Ric Flair, I paid Ric Flair five thousand dollars in ninety one for two days. And now I'm hearing numbers like he gets ten thousand an hour. So I don't know if that's true or not, but I know I paid him 5000 for two days, and I, I thought that was a heck of a lot of money back then. But most of the guys I was paying, uh, like in the Rick Rudes, the Buddy Rogers, Brunos, they were getting like 1500 to two grand. Wow, that's amazing. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, Rick, I don't know if Rick Flair gets 10000 an hour, but I know that he won't. He won't get on his uh, on on the first class uh, seat in this plane that him and that you have to buy for him and Wendy uh, uh, for less than t- at least ten thousand dollars for the event. I don't know if it's ten thousand dollars an hour. I've never booked them. I can't afford that for my little fan fest. But no. uh, but yeah, that's that's uh, you know I know that you know beside first class for him and Wendy and uh, uh, hotel suite. Uh, it's in the it's in the ten thousand whether it's ten thousand an hour or ten thousand a. Uh, 
I don't well, know. Maybe, maybe I mis- I was misquoted on the no, hourly. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Me and either. it's probably, a di- you yeah, know, hey, this is business. It's probably different for each event, you know. Uh, exactly. So um, let's talk about the elephant in the room. Uh, and, and, and speaking of blown away, I've been doing this podcast now for almost two years, and I've, I've found out a lot of things that really surprised me. I was absolutely shocked to find out that not only – are you the person, which, no, I, I wasn't shocked about that. I knew about that. You are the person that brought Vince Russo into the pro wrestling business. I know you'll never live that down, I'm sure. But that Jim Cornette introduced you guys. That's incredible to me. No, Jim did not. Oh, well, that's what it said in the article that, I, that they. No, no, no. Here's what happened. This is, it's almost like Jim introduced him to me in a way. Jim had a fan club. Uh, and there was a kid who ran Jim's fan club who was a listener to my show, Pro Wrestling Spotlight. His name was Andrew Goldberger. He was about 14 years old. He lived on Long Island, and he was the youngest person ever sued by Herb Abrams. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) He had a little newsletter, uh, and he wrote in the newsletter that Herb had bounced some checks, and Herb sued him. Uh, But Herb Herb did bounce some checks. Oh, yeah, but, but... you know, you're suing a 14-year-old kid. Uh, and so anyway, so Andrew Goldberger, who was a regular listener of mine, and he was a nerdy kid, smart kid, but a little nerdy. And and uh, and he and he got a hold of me and was like, hey, there's this. He said, and I just met with Andrew for lunch in New York City a week ago. And it's crazy because he basically became a very wealthy entrepreneur uh, and lives in Spain and part time in New York another part of the time. So we were talking about the story last week at lunch in New York city. I hope he and bought it. Oh yeah, he did. Yeah. 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 He did. Uh, and, and he was telling me about the time he was like walking down the street and you know, he was at, he was out of school or whatever. I mean, and he was walking and, and he turned down the wrong block and there was a video store there and, uh, he went into the video store and he saw these wrestling videos and it was will the throw video, which Vince Russo owned. So he then reached out to me, uh, and, and this is the same time Andrew was running Cornette's fan club. Uh, he reached out to me, and it's like, there's a guy that has wrestling videos, and he had some wrestlers appearing there, and his name is Vince Russo. Maybe he could be a sponsor on your radio show. So that's how that happened. What, what the Cornette thing, you know, that Cornette went nuts when I was on Jim's podcast, I think it was a couple of years ago, and I because I was the guy, he called, Jim called me patient zero uh, of of the uh, of the of the legacy of Vince Russo, I was patient zero. Uh, so when I when I told him that you know Andrew Goldberg is the person that introduced me to Russo, uh, Jim almost had a stroke. He doesn't I mean, he, he doesn't mess around when it comes to Vince Russo. I, I oh, I've oh, had no, him on this I've had him on this podcast uh, and and last year and and I got to talk to him a lot in uh, TNA and Impact Wrestling when I was working there and yeah, I mean it's not a work and he's not he's not screwing around he's he literally hates the guys wishes him dead and and, oh, I know. and 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 you know not to put words in his mouth but uh i think his instructions are to stacy his wife is that no matter uh how incapacitated he might be in a wheelchair <laughs> that, that, that 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 there's instructions to uh to fly him out to uh to piss on vince russo's grave that's a shoot uh i know i i've seen it and, I, and i'm part of you know the arcadian vanguard yeah, podcast yeah, network yeah. so yeah i i listen to jim i listen to jim every week i can't get enough of jim Cordette. i mean he's just 
what an amazing talent, what an amazing mouth. And but his his heat with Vince Russo, yeah, that that'll be to the grave. So you so this guy comes on as a sponsor, and then um and 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 then ends up coming on uh, as a, like a co-host. I'm sure that was part of the sponsorship. Well, he too. wasn't really the co-host. I mean, no, it was, it was. Here's here's what happened. I mean, when I met Vince. Um, we struck up a relationship. He started advertising on my show. Uh, he was very ambitious. He wanted a job in the wrestling business, and he saw me as a way to get in. And Vince and I have talked about this now. Now that we're cordial to each other, and and you know those past problems have now been buried because uh, I did a I did a face to face podcast with him about a year ago uh, when I was just getting in. That's one of the reasons I resurface um uh so anyway i mean he wanted to get into the business we did a deal um with jim Cornette, ironically for the best of the midnight express early days a videotape series so vince wanted you know to do a deal like that and then he wanted to get into the business and he wanted to start a newsletter he had a journalism degree and uh, he kept uh, pushing me to leave the station i was at wgbb and to go into New York City because it would be a bigger audience. And so he was really pushing. And I was in a, I was in a bad financial situation at the time. And, and so I kind of formed a partnership with him with, a, with, a, with a, not a good feeling in the pit of my stomach, like there's something wrong here. Uh, that's sort of I, how I felt when he came to WCW as the booker, but that, that's a different yeah, story. I'm sure, I'm sure, you know. But here's the deal, I mean – I literally, once we moved to the news station and then the first newsletter came out and on the back page, it was like, you know, listen to the pro wrestling spotlight with your hosts, John Arezzi and Vince Russo, which he never had discussed with me. Uh, so that was an immediate problem. And my partnership with him really lasted just a few months. Yeah, I know it was short term. Very, very short. But you, but but you were the but you're the one that you're the answer to the trivia question. How, you're the answer to the trivia question. How did Vince Russo get in the business? Did you ever foresee him getting where he got uh, in any way, shape, or form? No, I really never did. I mean, uh, I, I you know uh, he went through me pretty fast, and then he started his own radio show on my old station WGBB, Vicious Vincent's World of Wrestling, and he became a character. I think he always wanted to be someone to be a character in the business. And then he leveraged it and he got to know Linda and he wrote a letter to Linda McMahon and she brought him in. He became the editor. And of course the story of Vince Russo and the legacy is well known by everybody. Uh, and, uh, and you know, so I was responsible for bringing him in. So what am I going to do? There's nothing I can do about that. No, it's all good. It's all good, bro. Uh, so let's talk about that uh, that Donahue. Uh, uh, just to to put people in the right state of mind of of what was going on in the business, uh, there was a steroid trial that Vince was up on charges for, and I think at one point Vince even thought he was going to be found guilty because uh, I remember he brought Jerry Jarrett in to sort of run the company while he was in jail, um, mm -hmm. and then certain. Sort of the same time, uh, kind of after that died down a little bit, uh, there was a big scandal with uh, uh, Mel Phillips and uh, Terry Garvin and, and Ring Boys and, and stuff like that. Um, 
And this was the time, this was about the time that uh, reality-type television was setting in, and you had, like, Geraldo Rivera had a show where, like, you know, it was, like, the precursor to the Jerry Springer show. Donahue was a little, Phil Donahue was a little bit more, I was shocked that he even did wrestling, actually, at the time, because Donahue was always, uh, you know, he did, he, he didn't get in the gutter, so to speak. And I'm not saying wrestling's the gutter, but this show was. Um so you, you guys were on talking about that. It was a fascinating show. I watched it today. It's online. Uh, if you, if you want to check it out, there's a whole bunch of people on the panel, but some, but included superstar Billy Graham, Bruno San Martino, yourself, Dave Meltzer, and Vince himself defending himself and his company. Looking back, how do you, how do you, you said you hated it. Looking back, what were your thoughts on it? And, um, and were you intimidated by Vince? You were, Meltzer was the only thing that, that was between you and him at one point on the panel. Uh, and he was, you know, he's doing everything he could to defend himself. Well, I, I wasn't really intimidated by Vince's presence there. There was a lot of bad things that were going on that uh, whether Vince knew or not is still, you know, remains to be seen. The Mel Phillips stuff was horrible. Uh, you know, I, I knew Mel for a lot of years and, uh, you know, but some of the things that were going on were really bad. I mean, I remember getting the call uh, on one of my pro wrestling spotlight show from uh, from a kid who uh, basically called up and said, you think the steroid stuff is bad? You want to know what happened to me? And I, I didn't discuss it with him. I, uh, I took a call off there. And uh, it was at that point where I uh, turned this individual on to, uh, to the New York reporters that I knew, like Phil Muchnick and Bob Raceman, uh, a couple of the others. So, um Oh, so you were right in the middle of it. Oh, yes. I was right in the I was dead, right dead in the middle of all of it, all of it from the steroid stuff that really exploded uh, and then the sex scandal stuff that, that happened. Uh, and, 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 you know, CBS Evening News was in my studio with Barry O and Dave. And, you know, it was like that whole night before Donna, you were all in town. Um, so, yeah, I was asked to do the Donahue show. I received a death threat that day of the Donahue show. Uh, how does that work back then when there's no uh, apartment? How does that work back then when there's like no cell phones and no texting or no email? How do you get a death threat? Somebody calls your landline? No, so, so, no, no, no. Someone came to my house and I wasn't there at the time. Oh. Uh, someone knocked on my door and my mom lived with me uh, on Long Island and uh, she opened the door and they said, does John Arezzi live here? And she said, yeah, my son lives here. And uh, and told her, tell him he lives in a dangerous neighborhood. And that was it. And uh, I discussed that only once. And that was with an interview that was with an article in Penthouse Magazine years ago. I've never even brought it up since. But, yeah, I mean, it was I was in the middle of all of it. And did uh, it make you think twice? And, and, did it make you think twice about going on the Donahue show? It did. It made me think twice about everything. And, and, and at that time, up until that week, Russo was my partner. OK. Uh, uh, so even going into WEVD on the weekends to do our show, uh, when this shit, excuse the language, no, you, you can, hit, no, no, hit the fan, that's fine. Uh, every, every night we would go into the, when we'd go into the city on the weekend, we would actually be scared. We'd look around, you know, building and very, it was a time where we felt that anything could happen because things were exploding all around us, you know, and, and Vince Russo was that actual person who did, who got in touch with like Lord Littlebrook and, you know, that whole midget story that 
It's so embarrassing for me to talk about on you know on the Donnie I cringe when I see it. But Russo, <laughs> but, well, but Russo, you know, Russo, how do you explain so, how do you explain in ten seconds or less that the midget wrestlers have a troop and they're led by uh, uh, Lord Littlebrook and 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 you know, I, I I saw it and I understand right. I understand people were laughing, but I mean you know I I being in in the business for thirty years I totally get it, but it's like how do you explain that in ten ten seconds on national television? So don't beat yourself up too much. You can't, you know, I look at myself with the dark glasses and, and how much how much I weighed at the time. I wasn't like I, I just I was just I'm just to this day disgusted with myself when I look back at that that day, that interview, that that whole that whole uh, time period. Did you think that Vince was that WWF was going to go out of business? Uh, I had a feeling that, you know, the ship, you know, could could go under that the building could crumble uh, and, and it was really it was scary because you know we all are in the business we love the business but i felt that these stories at least had to be investigated they at least had to be reported on and and you would never be able to get uh the opposing viewpoint on the show they would never respond they they wouldn't you'd get a letter from a jerry mcdivitt you know if you getting threatening, getting threatening letters to sue you or whatever. Uh, but, you know, and there's one thing that I, I, I really, any interview I ever do and talking about that era and what was going on, um, I mean, it was a feeding frenzy at the time. And to this day, I mean, I think the one person that got, um, that didn't get treated right, and even by myself, was Pat Patterson. And uh, I think he got lumped in to uh, even though there were, you know, allegations towards Pat, but I think with the the midgets and Pat and, uh, you know, Pat might have been just joking around with them or whatever. I think it was way blown out of proportion. And to this day, uh, if I ever had a chance to see Pat Patterson, I would I would apologize to him face to face like a man, like you were lumped into something that that you were probably innocent of. Yeah, I think you know? I, th- I agree with you. I think he got lumped in, and like you said, it was a feeding frenzy yeah. at the time, and 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 it was moving so fast, and there wasn't internet, or if there was, it was right at the very beginning, and um, and so you know, it was it was a different world we lived in, and and uh, but yeah, I I think he got lumped into that, and I think Vince probably knew that, which is why Vince had him sent him home, and then brought him back, and didn't bring the other guys back. Uh, Correct, but um. So what made you is that what made you walk away from the business? Just the disgust of all that, uh, that, that craziness or was it something else? No, there's a, a, a myriad of things. Uh, it was the financial part of it. It was the Vince Russo experience. Uh, it, <laughs> he kills no, every. I, I, I'm kidding, but he. But and I like Vince as a person. I don't have any problem with him as a human being. I think he's a horrible wrestling writer, Booker, whatever you want to say. And I'll, I would tell him that to his face, and he'd say, "Bro, I disagree with you," and try to explain to me, the, you know, the myriad of reasons why he's not, and which he has down pat as good as anybody does. Uh, like you have your dates down pat. He has a story down pat and his uh you know his reasons why he was uh, a great booker and that's cool um but uh but yeah every <laughs> no but that, i mean the russo thing for me was the, that was part but that was in 92 i didn't leave till 96 oh, gotcha. so so uh, i started promoting you know, not only the conventions but i i formed a company called international wrestling all-stars oh, that's always that that's always the the, the start of the end Oh yeah, but it was also had success with the uh, with putting with putting together the deal that brought AAA to the United States. I mean, I I orchestrated. That's that. right, you did. 
Yeah, with uh, I, 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 you know, because I had a, a listener, entertainment attorney named Ron Scholar, who's one of my listeners, and he reached out to me, and I met with him, and and he was like, um, I really want to, I love Lucha, I, I want to bring Lucha here. Can you help me? And I was like, Well, let's see what I can do. And then I reached out to Dave Meltzer, and he introduced me to Conan, and then uh, then Conan introduced me to Pena, and then we put this deal together with Ron Scholar. He had a couple of financial partners, the managers of salt and pepper. Uh, and we put together the deal to bring triple a to the United States in 1993. So I was, I was a partner in that deal. Uh, and, um, we had great success with that. Uh, and then I got out of it in 94. Um, I, I sold my stock, uh, back to the company. And this was right before, uh, Scholar did the deal with Bischoff to do that uh, pay-per-view. Uh, and I, I made a nice chunk of money from it. And to this day, Ron Scholar will say, you're the only one that ever made any money from that whole thing. So, uh, <laughs> well, but, nobody, I mean, nobody you know, made any so money from salt and pepper either. So don't feel bad. All right. Right. But anyway, it was it was a good thing. But I started promoting overseas tours and that's what really started to tarnish me. I couldn't handle the swerves and I couldn't handle being held up for money. I couldn't handle the two years that Jake the Snake Roberts tortured me. I mean, literally from the problems, the demons, uh, the bizarre stuff, the stories I can't even talk about anywhere, really. Uh, and the, and just the fact that I couldn't handle this constant, you know, these, these, these performers who some of them, most of them, most of them I had great relationships with and, and they were just super people to work with, but the, the handful that were bad, those were the ones. And then finally it was in 1995 or 96, I had promoted a couple of shows out in Arizona uh, doing some stuff with AAA and then, uh, you know, IWS AAA. And, and I did a show and it was with uh, Neil Moskris, ironically, was in the main event. I brought him in because he was such a legend. And I mean, and, 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 and you know, they, he shows up and, 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 you know, and he, and he upgrades himself from coach to first class and he gives me the ticket. And, and I'm like, you know, uh, no, I, I'm not paying this. And, and then I, 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 and I lost a ton of money that day. I'll never forget it. I, I was like, I'm about to turn 40 years old. I don't got a penny to my name. I'm miserable. And I can't deal with this business anymore. I got to get out of it because I'm killing myself. And I got out of it in 96 without a car, without a penny to my name. And literally, like you, you say, you hit bottom. I hit bottom and I didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, so I got out and, and uh, I saw a little ad in the newspaper for a uh, country radio station on Long Island uh, as a salesperson. And I was uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to talk my way into getting the position there without a car. Initially, I was borrowing a car. And uh, and I, I got so disgusted with myself in the in the latter years of the wrestling business. I hated who I became because you become sometimes the people that you don't want to become like, you know, you become a worker in a lot of ways. And, 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 and I didn't like that about me. Uh, so when I got this job at the radio station, I really dropped down on my knees 
And I said, God, if you give me one chance to redeem myself, I mean, from this day forward, I will never, ever uh, not do the right thing for anyone I'm in business with. I'll always underpromise and overdeliver. And and I and I've kept to that to that philosophy and in the rest of my life. And every year has gotten better for me. Um, so I mean, it it was a it was a dark period of my life. Uh, those latter days in, in the nineties one until I got out of wrestling. And then I kind of turned my whole life around after I left it. I changed my name, uh, from, yeah, from John Arezzi to, uh, John Alexander. Uh, and, and I, I, I put wrestling in the rearview mirror. I didn't want to be found. I didn't want to be talked to. I, I, I was, uh, I was anonymous. I mean, from the wrestling game and, but I admit it would stay in my blood. I mean, when I started working in the radio, uh, one of my biggest accounts was the WWE. Oh, that- WWF. I mean, uh, uh, the sales guy, the guy Hugo Maslick was his name, and and uh, and I was given the account from the station, and I worked out, you know, a, an advertising deal with him, and he was just amazed at how passionate I was about wrestling, not knowing who I was. Uh, well, you were and, John and, Alexander. How would he? Right, exactly. So I became like his favorite radio salesperson, and. And we did a lot of business together, not only at that little station in WNMJ, MJC was the name of it. And then I got hired by a big New York City country station in 98. And he came along with me and advertised with me. And I used to do promotions like, you know, with Cactus Jack and Mick Foley and, and Sonny. And, and, you know, I'd show up at an event and, and I'd tell like Mick Foley, like, Shh, don't tell you go who I really am, you know. And uh, but that was kind of. Uh, but I did a great deal of promotions with him. Uh, but wrestling was in my blood. But I was always kind of living this double life then because I go into a diner on Long Island and there's Taz sitting there. And I'm like, and I was sitting with Hugo having breakfast. And and uh, so, I mean, that was kind of like really weird for me. And even when I and I got to move to Nashville in 2000, um, Dixie Carter and, and uh, Jarrett, had had a meeting with me. I was working for a big TV network called Great American Country, and they took a meeting with me to try to get TNA or Impact or whatever they were calling it at the time. This is before Spike, and they wanted it to air on GAC, and I took a meeting with them, and, uh, you know, of course, not telling them I was in the wrestling business previously, uh, and they were amazed at how much I knew about wrestling, you know? So it was kind of a double life, and that's why, uh, you know, this all led to me getting a book deal uh, and, and I'm writing a book now oh, wow. about, about my two identities because I've, I've been in Nashville for 20 years as a big music marketing guy, as John Alexander. And meanwhile, I had his whole separate life as John Arezzi. And now the publisher, ECW Press, is like, that's a fascinating story. Let's well, it is. I didn't even know that you had a, a different name. I know you dropped away from the business for a long time, but that's why I wanted to have you on. I think it's an interesting story. You know, like I said, you came up with the, for the most part, with the wrestling convention theme. And, and uh, you know, and that's the positive. The negative is uh, bro, bro. But uh, that's okay. I'm just. I'm, I'm no, te- I, I've turned a page I'm, with Vince, too, though. I I'm, really have. I, I really have. I'm, te- I'm teasing. I, I really don't have a ton of heat with, with Vince Russo. Mm-hmm. I just, I like to mess with him because uh, he takes everything so personally. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, this is life, man. You got to, the way I look at it, if I took everything everybody said about me in my 30 years around the business, personally, I would, I would have changed my name and probably ended up in an insane asylum. So, but uh, he does. And, uh, 
You know, like I like I said, I didn't think he was. I didn't, I didn't like the work he did in WCW when he came in. But you know, and I wasn't crazy about the stuff he did in TNA. But nobody asked me. They weren't paying me to give him that advice, so I just kept to myself. And uh, and that's just how I feel. But yeah. uh, nothing personal. I hope he has a wonderful life. And and me I like I. I, I just like to tease you about about that. Uh, no, no, that, believe me, there's no offense taken here. I mean, uh, he's a very controversial, polarizing figure, uh, you know, so that's that. And I feel bad for him to this day because he's kind of boxed into this life that I guess if he had the opportunity to try to get out, maybe he would. But he can't. He's in it and there's nothing else he can do. So, uh, yeah, I mean, he's he's you know, he, he is what he is and. And uh, and he's making a living doing this. But I think, uh, honestly, that if he had the chance to do something else, he probably would. Um, you know, me getting back in is a, is a really interesting thing. I never thought I'd get back in. And I really and it really was predicated on last year when I was selling my house. I decided to downsize. I mean, I've been in Nashville 20 years and I was like, uh, I don't really need this house anymore. Uh, I want to downsize a little bit. And I went to start cleaning stuff out of the attic and I found boxes of stuff that were labeled wrestling. And uh, that's what started it. I opened up boxes of eight millimeter films I shot at the garden when I was a kid and all my radio shows, 300 of them and cassettes and and uh, 10,000 pictures from the garden in Philly and and videotapes of all the matches I promoted that people have never seen before. So I was like, there's something here. Um, and, uh, and, and I, and I basically said, there's, there's probably a market for nostalgia out there that maybe I'll do something with this. And I actually contacted the WWE and met with the, uh, Benjamin Brown who does archives there and had a few discussions with him. But it wasn't really until November of uh, of last year when my nephew, Dominic, who is a big Vince Russo fan, I mean, he just loves, he thinks Vince is, you know, outrageous. And he knew I was in business with him. So he, 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 he calls me up and he says, Uncle, Uncle, I mean, Russo was talking about you on this podcast that he was doing with Matt Kuhn at the time, Truth, or, Truth with Consequences. And he brought me up. And he said a lot of things that were factually inaccurate, uh, like he did in his book years ago, Forgiven. And I was like, you know what? I let the book go all those years ago. But now I want to he challenged people who had an opposing viewpoint to get on a show with him. And I said, you know what? I'm going to do it. And I reached out to Matt Kuhn and Matt reached out to Vince and, and he set up this face to face. And that's how I got in, because at the same time, I was like, oh, let me put a Twitter account up. I was able to get my real name at John Arizzi on Twitter, and and I just put up a couple little pictures. And I saw that sudden- I saw I was like I was on Twitter one day, and I saw that you were, <laughs> and and I was like, what happened to this guy? Right, everyone thought I was dead. I, I didn't mean, know if you were dead. I just, I mean, no, if, I mean, if I'm being honest, if I'm being honest, I just kind of forgot about it. Yeah, yeah. People thought I died or was in witness protection. I don't know. It was all kinds of stories circulating about me. And witness protection anyway, might not have been a bad thing back uh, with everything you yeah, went back through. back in the day. Yeah. Oh my goodness, yes. But so, so I discovered that people remembered me. Uh, you know, I didn't have no big massive following. I, I think I did some really cool things, but people remembered, and I have all these archives. So posting these little pictures or little clips from film and. 
and people reacted to it and the fans got engaged. So I started a, a Instagram account and then I had been in discussions with Brian last. I did a couple of guest shots with Brian and, and uh, I was like, I have all these radio shows. There's something we can do. And, and then we came up with the idea for pro wrestling spotlight then and now let's look back at your show 30 years ago, each week, another episode from 30 years ago. And I really love what I'm doing. And it's led into a lot of different opportunities for me. And, and so I don't know where it's going to go or what's going to happen, but I think 2020, I'll be getting deeper involved in the business in ways that I really can't talk about yet. But there's oh, here we go. No, no, no. I mean, I can, but I can't. I mean, I, I've been offered to deal with Fight TV. I mean, to do a kind of nostalgia uh, scenario with them and, 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 and unearth a lot of the archives. So that's kind of cool. Tell I mean, Mike, tell Mike Weber I said hello. I will. So, I mean, you know, I will. I mean, I, I, so I don't know what I'm getting to, to be honest with you. I really don't know. And I'm not I certainly am a lot smarter on the business side of it. And I don't have any tolerance for nonsense like I did. And I don't have to take the nonsense and the people working you and all of the swerves and everything else that I'm sure is still existent in the wrestling business. But I'm going to go in it as a historian and as someone who. Really, I think there's not very many people that are in my age category, and I'm going to be 63 next uh, next January, that really have the background and the historic content that I have. You know, George Napolitano has been around just as longer than me. Bill Apter has. Uh, but none of them have the films, the videos, and none of them have done what I've done from the conventions to the shoot radio show to the stories and all the things that I've done. Uh, they're legends in their own right. For me, I never became prominent nationally, which is something I probably wanted back in the day. I would have loved for WCW or I would have loved to have been uh, with the WWF in a position with the company. I would have loved to have uh, a little bit more of a presence in the business, but it didn't happen. So I still have my stuff. I still have my photos. I still have my archives. I still have my memories and uh, so we'll see where all this crazy stuff goes. But um, I'm much more careful with who I associate with. And I'm much more smarter when it comes to business relationships than I was back in the 90s. There you go. It's a fascinating story. I'm glad you were here to talk about it. Just hey, one last question. I'm just curious. Has Jeff Jarrett put two and two together uh, that the guy he met to try to get on TV was the guy who was right in the middle of why his dad moved to New York or Connecticut and was going to take over if Vince went to jail? Yes. What did, what did he have to say? Well, because he reached out to me um, not too long ago. It was a few years back when he was trying to start a global and he wanted me uh, to work. Gotcha. Yeah, so I did a few calls for him and and uh, did a little leg work, but there was never any money. I mean, so I'm like, I, I, I did that for like a month. And uh, and I was like, I can't work for free, Jeff, and I'm not going to. And that was the end of it. You learned that's the that that after that entire story is probably the uh, is probably the punctuation point of this of, of, of the journey is that, uh, you know, uh, it's a business that uh, could suck you in and make you do things for very little money or or just uh, the excitement of being around it. And uh and, 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 and you learn. So I'm glad mm -hmm. to hear that. I'm glad that you're back. I'm glad for, for your success and anything that happens in the future. And I appreciate you coming on, telling your story. When you're down uh, in Florida, checking out the Mets, uh, let me know. And, uh, and maybe we could go out and talk some music and uh, classic rock and the Beatles and, 
and it's all great stuff. So I appreciate your time, and uh, you could promote uh, your, where people could find your podcast or how to enjoy it, follow you on Twitter or anything. Oh, else. thank you so much, David. It's been a pleasure for me to talk to you, and and uh, and I appreciate the opportunity. But if anyone out there wants to follow me. Uh, on Twitter, it's simply at John Arezzi. Uh, Instagram is the same thing, at John Arezzi. Uh, I do have a, a Facebook uh, page now, which is John Arezzi's Matt Memories uh, on Facebook. And my podcast uh, is at uh, pwspod.com. Uh, and it's every week. We drop the shows on a Sunday, and it goes back 30 years of Pro Wrestling Spotlight. And uh, it's really it's really a great look back at those days. And, and I'm having fun with it. So, you know, when it becomes not fun again, then I'll disappear. <laughs> That's the important part is, is having fun because uh, this business isn't always a fun business, unfortunately, as you found out. Hey, a great story. Looking forward to the book. And, uh, again, thanks for taking the time. Thank you so much. Want to thank John Arezzi for telling his story this week on City Ringside and want to thank you for joining us. Like we say every week, please spread the word. Tell your friends and neighbors. Subscribe if you haven't already. And if you can, leave a review. Until next time, this is David Penzer still City Ringside. Follow David Penzer on Twitter at David Penzer. Also make sure to follow the show on Twitter at Penzer Ringside. You've been sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. This is a Duffified Live with Chef Brian Duffy Quick Fix on Radio Influence. All right, everybody. Guess what? This week on Duffified Live, I get to have a conversation with Chef Monte Carlo. Now, you may know her from a whole bunch of different stuff. She's done a show on Food Network called Help My Yelp. She did a show with uh, some dude. His name was uh, Gordon Ramsay on the show Master Chef. Talking to Chef Monte Carlo, a single mom out of L.A., who has a pretty amazing story of how she got to where she is today. Not only that, of how she got in front of Gordon Ramsay, of how she got in front of a divorce attorney. Boys and girls, welcome to the show for this week on Duffified Live, Chef Monte Carlo. Let's do it, Duffy! Duffified Live with Chef Brian Duffy can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com.